Due to the graphic nature of these kingpins' crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug running, murder, and government incompetence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The farm in Minden, New York, looked like any other. Locals who drove by on their way into town never noticed the newly installed exhaust fan sticking out of the barn's roof, or the brand new shed with the deadbolts on the door. The white van unloading barrels of acetone and ether never raised any suspicions either. Minden locals had a strict live-and-let-live philosophy. This was exactly why the Cali cartel had bought the farm in the first place. In the farm's first nine days of operation, they processed 1,530 kilos of cocaine, netting them a neat profit of over $100 million. But on April 12, 1985, a wild spark flared to life near the barrels full of acetone and ether. The barn exploded, sending a plume of fire into the sky that was visible nearly 10 miles away. Cops were on the site within the hour. Firefighters hosed down burning bricks of snowy cocaine. And when the DEA broke the deadbolt on the shed door, they found enough chemicals to produce 5,000 kilograms of cocaine. But the explosive fire hadn't set the Cali cartel back at all. Within two weeks, a new lab was already up and running less than 500 miles away. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the Parcast Network. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. This is our second of four episodes on Gilberto and Miguel Rodriguez Orihuela, brothers who made up half of the Cali cartel in Colombia. This week, we'll take a look at their incredible, almost mythic rise to power. Next week, we'll begin exploring the investigations that foiled the cartel's booming success. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Throughout the 1970s, the Cali Cartel had built the infrastructure for a worldwide drug organization. It stretched from Bolivia and Peru, where their coca was grown, through Colombia, where they processed the cocaine, and up to New York City, where it was sold. By the turn of the 1980s, when Gilberto and Miguel were reaching their 40s, their international empire was fully solidified. Colombian authorities knew that the Rodriguez brothers and their co-founder, Jose Chepe Santa Cruz Londoño, were involved in drug trafficking. 
but thanks to Hilberto's careful planning, authorities mistook them for mid-level drug dealers, nothing more. No one in Colombia or America knew they were running one of the world's most successful cartels. In fact, no one knew the Cali cartel existed at all. The ostentatious Medellin cartel to the north had hogged the spotlight from the start. Pablo Escobar and the Ochoa brothers were drawn to attention like moths to a flame, which suited the Rodriguez's perfectly. They wanted nothing more than to remain hidden in the shadows, raking in money without the DEA ever finding out. The riches that came flooding in were so enormous, it literally broke their counting machines. Eventually, the cartel invested in veterinarian scales to weigh their money. But all that dirty money had to be laundered before they could use it. They couldn't exactly put drug dealing on their tax returns. From the start, they'd been running their profits through legit businesses, like Gilberto's drugstore chain. When the booming success of those small businesses started to stretch credibility, Gilberto had wrangled control of a bank, called the Workers' Bank, and used it to launder even bigger sums. In the late 1970s, Colombian President Alfonso Lopez Michelson enacted a policy that allowed U.S. dollars to be deposited into Colombian banks without any questions about where it came from. This policy was called Ventanilla Siniestra, or the left-handed window. Gilberto's corrupt workers' bank was now effectively just a regular bank. At any financial institution in the country, drug dollars could be dropped off, converted into Colombian pesos, taxed, and spent freely without any interference from law enforcement. Money laundering had never been simpler. In the late 70s, Gilberto bought a bank of his own with a co-partner, Jorge Ochoa, one of the godfathers of the Medellin cartel. Might be odd to think of these two rivals working so comfortably together, but the Rodriguez's and Ochoa's had actually known each other growing up, and they all agreed that both cartels would benefit from having free reign of a bank. As long as no one overstepped their bounds, the partnership went swimmingly. The Colombian government knew full well that the bank was being used to launder drug money, but they casually looked the other way. The cartels agreed to let the government take the interest accrued on their bank deposits as an unspoken, unofficial tax. That interest amounted to nearly $1 billion per year. By the summer of 1980, nearly half of the country's Federal Reserve came from narco dollars. Over in the U.S., New York City was experiencing the snowstorm of the century. There seemed to be no limit to how much cocaine the Cali cartel could sell. At first, the cartel had relied on human mules to smuggle cocaine, one kilo at a time. But in the early 80s, they began finding ways to move larger and larger shipments into the states. Learjets, Cessna 210s, and commercial shipping boats were added to the Cali cartel stables, each registered under a different fake identity in a different country. Customs had no reason to believe any two planes were even connected, let alone that they were stuffed full of coke. The DEA wasn't even looking for cocaine back then. Heroin was still the drug of the day. In 1978, 
A citizen's committee letter from the Jackson Heights neighborhood found its way into the DEA's New York office. The letter said the neighborhood was crumbling under a violent crime wave they attributed to cocaine trafficking. The DEA was so uninterested in investigating, they passed the letter off to the New York Drug Enforcement Task Force. Even within the task force, only one officer would take a shine to it. His name was Ken Robinson. To that point in Robinson's career, he'd only ever seen small shipments of cocaine. He'd watched Colombian ships toss cocaine into the Brooklyn Harbor, where divers swam the bricks to shore. Most of these swimmers were picked up and arrested, but these busts were about as exciting as catching a teenager out after curfew. Robinson had trouble imagining that there was much more to the cocaine trafficking trade. Yet here was a letter insisting that cocaine was so rampant, all they'd need to do was walk out onto the street to find some. Robinson accepted the challenge. He walked the Jackson Heights neighborhood for several days, but saw nothing amiss. Certainly nothing to suggest a crime wave. Then in September of 1978, a local Colombian national walked into the task force office and asked to speak to the man in charge of cocaine investigations. Robinson sat the man down in a secluded interrogation room and told him they simply didn't have any proof of a cocaine problem in the city. Not in Jackson Heights, not anywhere. The man was flummoxed. He told Robinson that cocaine was everywhere, if he knew where to look. He offered to work as an informant. Robinson was so intrigued, he agreed. A few days later, the man called. A drug deal was going down at 5.30 p.m., and he knew exactly where. He could even describe the man they were looking for. Robinson and three other officers reluctantly drove to the spot, which was over in Queens. Parked across the way was a red Chevy Impala and a man who matched the exact description the informant had given. They watched as the man reached into the Impala, removed a parcel, and tucked it under the jacket laid over his arm. It was the jacket that gave it away. It was nearly 80 degrees that day. No one would be carrying a jacket unless they were hiding something under it. The officers stepped out of their car as casually as they could, but the suspect spotted them right away. He broke into a sprint. The officers chased him until they cornered him and discovered a kilo of cocaine under his jacket. By the time they had arrested the suspect and returned to their car, the red Impala was gone. Robinson had already written down the plate number, so he checked it in his system. It was registered to a fake name and address and had a fake VIN number. The 50 parking tickets associated with the vehicle had been charged to a man who didn't exist. Something was going on. Of that much, he was convinced. A few days later, Robinson returned to the same spot and found a blue Buick parked there. It had the same license plate number as the red Impala they'd seen there before. Robinson followed the Buick to an apartment building where he saw, lo and behold, a red Impala parked in the garage. It looked identical to the car he'd seen a few days ago, except the license plates. He ran the new plate number and realized the license plates on the Impala were registered to a blue Buick. Someone had simply switched the plates on the two cars and kept driving them around town. He wasn't quite sure what to make of it all, but the task force had its first lead. 
And though they didn't realize it, it's first glimpse into the Cali cartel's intricate infrastructure. The cartel's primary goal from the very beginning was to avoid detection. So the Cali cartel's New York point man, Chepe Santa Cruz, had invested in a few used car businesses, which gave them a limitless supply of vehicles to work with. Then Chepe had gone recruiting. DMV workers across the city found themselves on the cartel payroll, producing counterfeit IDs and tags to go along with the cars. To take the subterfuge further, Chepe bought several real estate companies in Queens and paid for Colombian nationals to become licensed realtors. With these realtors on their team, the cartel could buy buildings and by extension, addresses to attach to the car registrations. This also gave them an endless number of locations for stash houses, all registered under totally different fake identities. Ken Robinson was about to fall down a rabbit hole of fake documents, people, and apartments. He'd have a hell of a time convincing the DEA to take the coke problem seriously once they found out none of his suspects actually existed. All the while, the Cali cartel kept on conducting business as usual. It would take a miracle to put this case together, but Robinson's lucky day was on its way. Coming up, we'll take a look at the chance encounter with a Cali godfather that blew Ken Robinson's investigation wide open. Now back to the story. It was full steam ahead for the Cali cartel in the late 1970s. Business was booming and their empire was expanding. However, the New York Drug Enforcement Task Force was about to put the cartel's expertly planned defense strategies to the test. In late 1978, Ken Robinson focused his investigation on vehicles that matched the same profile as the red Impala and blue Buick, cars with an excessive number of unpaid parking tickets that hung around the same street corners in Queens. They also began 24-hour surveillance of the building where they'd found the red Impala parked. Robinson's department heads refused to allocate funds for his strange little hunch, so he and his officers staked out the building for months on their own time and their own dime. In October of 1978, they caught their first small break. The task force seized three kilos of cocaine and a small notebook full of profit calculations. They realized that whoever was behind this mysterious drug ring was pulling in at least $1 million per month, unheard of in the cocaine trafficking world. Then, in January 1979, their informant warned them that someone important was about to visit the house that they were staking out. Jose Patino, a Colombian national. Robinson and his men watched with excitement as Patino drove the red Impala out of the garage. They tailed him to JFK International Airport, where he picked up a brawny, well-dressed man with black hair and some sort of skin irritation on his face. Robinson followed the Impala out of the parking lot, then turned on his lights and pulled the car over. Flecks of peeling skin wafted out of the window as Robinson approached the car. He squinted at the man with the rash-covered face and asked to see his ID. His name was Jose Santa Cruz Londoño. That's right. They had pulled over Chepe Santa Cruz, the head of the entire New York branch of the Cali cartel. Of course, Robinson didn't know that at the time. 
Santa Cruz was just another name they could add to their list of suspicious persons who may or may not exist. After they let the Impala go, Robinson and his men tailed them to a luxury apartment complex and then to a private airport where Santa Cruz was dropped off. Apart from the new suspect, they had very little to work with. All they could do was stake out the new building and wait for Patino to return. For four months, they continued their around-the-clock surveillance without luck. Patino just never came back to the building. Eventually, Robinson gave up and told the building superintendent to contact them if he ever saw Patino again. Patino was their guy, they were sure of it. But the officers needed more than a hunch before they could search the apartment. Six months later, in July of 1979, the superintendent finally called and said that Patino was in the apartment at that very moment. Robinson and his officers pounced. They waited outside until Patino left the building. Then they asked him if they could see inside the bag he was carrying. To their surprise, Patino simply handed it over, apparently unaware that he had the right to refuse. Inside, they found a money-counting machine, the kind only used by banks and black market dealers. Pressing their luck, the officers then asked if they could take a look inside the apartment. Patino welcomed them inside, where they discovered a pile of rent receipts for apartments across Queens. They asked Patino to take them on a neighborhood tour. That's when he began to fidget. Patino was determined to play it cool. He showed them the way to the first building. Sweat trickled down his neck as he led the officers into the lobby. When they came across the landlord, Patino leapt forward to greet him. He asked the landlord to reassure the other gentleman that he had been living there for years. The landlord told the agents he'd never seen Patino before in his life. That was enough probable cause to fully search the apartment Patino had so dutifully been leading them to. As soon as they opened the door, the chemical smell was overwhelming. The agents found 44 kilos of cocaine stacked neatly in the bathtub. None of them had ever seen that much coke in one place before. They found guns, hundreds of thousands of dollars, financial records, lists of addresses, and a coded registration book used to keep track of the fake identities registered at the DMV. They also discovered a passport for a man named Victor Crespo. The photo looked suspiciously like the man Patino had picked up from the airport months before, the one with the flaky face. When they fed the name and the photo into the Interpol database, their suspicion was proven correct. The fake passport was traced back to Jose Chepe Santa Cruz, a man loosely linked to a Colombian drug trafficker named Gilberto Rodriguez Orihuela. Curiously, all the photos on record, both in the passports and the Interpol database, showed Chepe with different appearances. They realized that the skin irritation on his face at the airport was just a clever disguise. In the next few weeks, agents uncovered a maze of houses across Queens containing some of the largest stashes of guns and ammunition the DEA had ever seen. In total, Nearly $7 million in cash was seized, and a slew of drug dealers were arrested. This was clearly only a small glimpse into an enormous enterprise. 
Chepe knew the crack in their so-called impenetrable facade wouldn't sit well with the other godfathers. He called Hilberto to tell him what had happened. Hilberto took the call from his home office, shutting the door on his visiting children. Chepe sounded like his ego was bruised. Seven million was a pittance. They regularly lost more money to plane crashes and minor busts. The important thing he knew was the mistake itself. Chepe promised Hilberto this was the first and only slip he would make. Hilberto was quiet on the other end of the line. Chepe waited. There was no reason to rush the man people called the chess player. After a few moments, Hilberto cleared his throat and spoke. He told Chepe everything would be fine. There were contingency plans in place for this very occasion. Chepe would close ranks in New York, empty their stash houses, and switch their car registrations, cutting off all the DEA's potential leads. Once the heat had died down, he would have to rebuild the New York operation from scratch. Hilberto reassured Chepe this is exactly why they built the cartel the way they did. At any moment, they could sacrifice an arm to save the body. By the time the DEA agreed to start taking the Cali cartel seriously, they found themselves trying to bail water from an already sunken ship. Their leads had all suddenly vanished. The best they could do was use the ledgers they'd found to arrest some low-level dealers and sweat them for details. But the suspects they arrested all seemed to be mute or clueless. No one would say a word about who they worked for. Most, in fact, didn't even know who they worked for. The Cali Godfathers scrambled to make sure the ones who did know anything kept quiet about it. As we mentioned last week, the cartel kept a list of every employee's living family members to be used as collateral if they were ever arrested. Chepe and Miguel had no problem with violence, but Gilberto was far more interested in litigation than murder. Every employee who was arrested in New York was supplied with an attorney on the cartel's dime. The attorney's only goal was to secure bail so the employee could escape to Colombia before the trial. For over a year, judges across New York City would set bail only to see their dockets empty the next week. By then, the case was over. There was no extradition from Colombia. The salary of a few clever lawyers was a small price to pay in the long run. Hundreds of millions of dollars were still flowing into the cartel every year. So much, in fact, that they had to find clever ways of smuggling the cash out of the states. And that's where the Cali cartel's fourth godfather, Pacho Herrera, came in. Pacho had been arrested on petty drug charges in the late 70s. The DEA, of course, had no idea he was connected to the Rodriguez brothers or Chepe Santa Cruz. Pacho used his time in prison to expand the cartel's network and make contacts in Mexico. The cartel had plans to expand into Houston, Texas, and his new Mexican friends would prove invaluable. As soon as Pacho was released in the early 80s, he came back to Colombia and took over the responsibilities of moving and laundering the cartel's money. His strategies were often deviously simple. For example, the cartel had a contact who worked for Braniff Airlines. Whenever a courier was set to return with a shipment of cold cash, they would use their beeper to tell the Braniff employee they were coming. 
The employee would process their ticket under whatever fake passport they were using and take the bag past security themselves, then hand it off to the courier again. Each duffel bag usually contained between one and $300,000 in small bills. The other common tactic was to buy massive expensive pieces of equipment like luxury cars and ship them to Colombia where they could be sold again. It was easier to ship a single car worth half a million dollars than it was to sneak giant duffel bags full of cash through multiple border checkpoints. And the cartel was always prepared to take advantage of a blind spot created by their friendly rivals, the Medellin cartel. Anytime Medellin caused a ruckus, Cali shipped giant packages of drugs elsewhere while the DEA was distracted. The Medellin and Cali cartels were actually pretty cordial toward each other, even as both groups grew throughout the early 80s. Escobar, the Ochoas, and the other godfathers of Medellin had all come from poor blue-collar barrios, just like the Rodriguez's and Santa Cruz. There was a general understanding that everyone had started at the bottom and clawed their way up. Both cartels had more money than God at this point, and there was no reason to pick fights that they were all prospering. They moved in the same social circles, and they often found themselves at the same parties. Escobar and the Rodriguez brothers were also all big fans of professional racing. Escobar owned a Renault Formula One car, and the Rodriguez's owned two raceways. Friendly betting happened all the time. They even worked together to pack their cars with cocaine when they were shipped to the U.S. for races. Unfortunately, the DEA eventually found out about that. Their cars and drugs were seized immediately. The two cartels' official relationship was one of almost accidental proximity, but never quite one of friendship. That all changed in November of 1981. Coming up, we'll explore the incident that finally brought the Medellin and Cali cartels together. Now back to the story. On November 12, 1981, Martha Ochoa, the youngest sister of the Medellin cartel's Ochoa brothers, was kidnapped from her college campus. M-19 guerrilla fighters were demanding a $15 million ransom. M-19 was already notorious around Colombia for kidnapping and ransoming tourists and local leaders, the same way the Rodriguez brothers had done as teenagers. Except M-19 was notorious for killing victims whose families didn't pay. This time, however, the M-19s had taken the wrong victim. The kidnapping made the Medellin cartel look weak. It didn't matter how many people they killed or how many laws they broke. If they couldn't protect one of their own, they would lose the fearsome reputation they'd built their empire on. There was only one person they could turn to for help. Pablo Escobar picked up the phone and dialed. 260 miles away in Cali, Gilberto Rodriguez answered. Pablo was furious but he was also scared. Gilberto could sense it. Pablo told Gilberto about Martha's kidnapping. Paying the ransom was out of the question. It would make the Medellin cartel even weaker. Doing nothing obviously wasn't an option either. They needed Gilberto's penchant for strategy if they were going to fix this. Gilberto's response was swift and direct. 
Of course they would help. If the kidnappers got away with Martha's ransom, they'd inevitably go after the families of other traffickers. This problem was bigger than the two of them, and so was the solution. Coordinates were sent to every drug trafficker operating in Colombia with strict instructions to memorize them, destroy the information, and arrive at the designated location on time. Between 50 and 230 drug traffickers attended the meeting, depending on who you ask. Hilberto and the Ochoas laid out the situation. Martha Ochoa had been kidnapped, and they were all going to help get her back. Strategies flew across the room. Some suggested using a ransom drop to pick off the kidnappers all at once, but the Ochoas vetoed that plan. They'd never be able to face their mother again if something happened to their sister in the crossfire. Someone suggested a simple, gruesome solution. Each cartel had their own hitmen. What if they each contributed their best killers to form a squad of kidnapper assassins? That is, assassins who kill kidnappers, not kidnappers who are also assassins. The primary goal would be to track down the men who had taken Martha, kill them, and set the girl free. But any M-19 members they came across could be killed, too, to send a message. Hilberto's go-to problem-solving solution had never been murder. He was worried about the impact it would have on their reputation, running through town shooting down Colombian citizens, even if they were M-19 guerrillas. Hilberto agreed to contribute to the assassin squad if everyone agreed to warn the kidnappers about the punishment they'd face if they didn't return Martha unharmed. Giving the kidnappers a choice would protect the reputations of the cartels. In the coming days, both cartels used their smuggling planes to rain flyers down across Colombia. The flyers warned M-19 that the kidnapper squad was hunting them. Any M-19 guerrillas they found would be strung up by the neck and left to die. Days crept by without a response. Hilberto agreed it was time to make good on the threat. Cartel assassins prowled through the streets of Cali and Medellin like the white-hatted town marshals of a spaghetti western, except these men carried Uzis with the safeties off. Bodies of M-19 members began appearing across Cali and Medellin, dangling like Christmas ornaments from the trees in public parks. They were left there to rot, because no one, not even M-19, was brave enough to take them down. After three weeks, Martha was released unharmed. The assassin squad had proved so successful that the cartels established it as a permanent force. Any kidnapping could be reported to your nearest cartel leader, and within a few days, the men responsible would be found and executed. After Martha's rescue, meetings between the cartels became regular occurrences. During their next meeting, Medellin and Cali agreed to coordinate their shipments of cocaine into the United States. Private planes were expensive, and using them too often provoked suspicion. Instead, the Cali cartel would be allowed to pack their cocaine into the same freighters the Medellin cartel used, at minimal cost. All they would have to do is move the cocaine from Miami to New York once it reached the U.S., which was a relatively easy feat. They all agreed that Medellin would keep their territory in Florida, Cali would control New York City, 
and California would be up for grabs to whoever could build the infrastructure there first. That was fine with the Rodriguez's. They might set their sights on California someday, but for now, they already had their hands full. As the Cali cartel's power grew, it became impossible to remain in the shadows. By the early 80s, everyone in Cali knew who they were and what they did. The four godfathers abandoned their low profiles and started living up to their titles. They split the city of Cali into four districts. Together, Gilberto and Miguel ruled the city center and Ciudad Jardín, where the wealthiest citizens lived. Chepe ruled the south side, and Pacho ruled the satellite cities surrounding Cali to the north and south. The people within each district were under the protection of the ruling godfather as long as they remained loyal. Each Cali godfather built himself a palace. The estates were really more like miniature cities, complete with soccer arenas, churches, taverns, nightclubs, country clubs, and horse stables, all on one piece of private land. Inside their compounds, they surrounded themselves with luxury and opulence. Porcelain statues, real lion skin rugs, indoor swimming pools, and full cinemas. Bars with glass ceilings were built under the pools. The Rodriguez's now ran 250 drugstores across the city, as well as a pharmaceutical lab that produced nearly all of Colombia's Alka-Seltzer. This earned them a tidy, legal profit of nearly 4 billion pesos a year. They also used this lab to manufacture an assortment of party drugs, of course. But while the brothers were happy to sell drugs, they never partook themselves. Gilberto was staunchly anti-drug. When one of his grown sons went to prison for a short time for drug use, Gilberto paid the warden to let him go into his son's cell so he could spank him with his belt. In addition to their own compounds, the brothers built each of their many wives their own mansions and gave them limitless funds to decorate to their heart's content. Now that the Cali cartel was an open secret, the Godfathers changed tactics again, from remaining invisible to making themselves invincible. Their guiding philosophy became by Colombia. Unlike the Medellin cartel, who ruled with fear and violence, the Cali godfathers would woo the country with investments. They aimed to build an infrastructure so vital to Colombia that the country would crumble without them. Throughout the 1980s, the Cali cartel, and the Rodriguez brothers in particular, transformed Cali from a quiet residential city into a bustling metropolis full of skyscrapers and abstract art. An entire accounting firm sprang up overnight to help the cartel keep track of all of their investments. Thousands of financial, retail, and manufacturing jobs were created. Almost every family in Cali had at least one member who worked for the cartel on either the legal or illegal side of the empire. The cartel still kept files on every employee's family, which at this point numbered just about every resident of Cali. But they didn't need to use intimidation anymore. The city was prospering. No one dared to bite the hand that fed them. The cartel also kept thousands of taxi drivers on their payroll. They paid them extra to report back on everyone they picked up at the airport, just in case there were any DEA agents coming their way. The Cali cartel had won over the common people in their districts, but to truly take over the country, 
they would need to infiltrate the nation's elite. Chepe Santa Cruz tried to buy membership to Colombia's premier country club, but he was rejected. So he built an exact replica of the club on his estate. He staged parties there as often as he could, inviting hundreds of movers and shakers from across Colombia who were willing to overlook where he got his money. As it turns out, money can buy almost anyone's favor. Befriending business leaders and politicians gave them a godlike level of control over the city. As long as they looked like respectable business tycoons instead of thugs, they could do whatever they wanted and no one would bat an eye. They were very devoted to maintaining that reputation. The Rodriguez brothers founded the Columbia Radio Group, which they used to spread the idea that they were entirely legal and law-abiding businessmen. Every time a news article or TV segment dared to imply that the Rodriguez businesses operated illegally, their bevy of lawyers were all too happy to threaten them with defamation lawsuits. By 1983, the Cali cartel had a steady hand on all the moving parts of their empire. Jets full of money were being flown into Colombia and unloaded right into the country's welcoming banks. The DEA was still focused on the ruckus coming out of Medellin. They were so blasé about Cali, they referred to them as the Gentleman's Cartel. Things were so good heading into 1984, it was like the Rodriguez brothers were tempting fate, begging life to throw them a curveball. But becoming complacent could be a fatal risk. One false move could turn the entire operation into a powder keg. A single spark is all it would take. Next week, we'll take a look at the rivalries and mistakes that rattled the Kelly Cartel's solid foundation. Even the man called the chess player couldn't stay ahead of the game forever. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week as the DEA and the Medellin cartel sink their claws into the Cali cartel. You can find Kingpins as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Jordan Trapier and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.